Hello again, Little Masters, and welcome once more to the Prancing Pony Podcast. West to Hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark. And as always, I'm here with the Man of the West, the Aragorn to my Amer, Alan Sisto. <laughs> welcome to Episode 8 of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Today we're going to be continuing our journey through the Silmarillion with the first chapter of the Quenta Silmarillion of the Beginning of Days. That's right. And so Quenta Silmarillion, or the history of the Silmarils is what that, that phrase means, mm-hmm. is the main section of the book, The Silmarillion. We yes, spent the last is. few episodes talking about the prologues that set up the world. Now we're going to start the story itself. And after taking a quick break in our last episode to meet the players of the Vala Quenta, mm-hmm. we're actually now going to pick up right where Ina Lindale left off. Yes, we are. Well, before we dig into the book, let's see if uh, old Barliman has anything in his mailbag for us. Sean? Yes. Nakat from Pakistan wrote to us again to correct something we said last time. And before we get into her comment, I just want to take a quick moment to say, so we're recording this on March 30th, mm-hmm. and the tragic attacks in Lahore, Pakistan that mm-hmm. happened on Easter Sunday are still all very too much. fresh in our memories. Yeah, very much so. And uh, just a, a quick note to Nakat. Um, everyone around her, uh, listeners and, and otherwise in uh, the city of Lahore, Pakistan, our hearts are with you. Yes, and uh, our thoughts and prayers are definitely with you. Yes, indeed. So uh, thank you, Nakat, for taking the time to correct us on a little error we made. We actually said <laughs> in our last episode that Este does not appear in the book after the Valaquenta. Alan, do you want to touch on this one? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that we mentioned in fairness that we see her one more time uh, when her maidens tend the body of the mother of one of the primary characters, as it turns out. Uh, but I did say that we don't see her again in the text after that. Well, it turns out I was wrong. It happens every now and then. <laughs> don't ask my wife. She might tell you it's more than now and then. Uh, we'll see a brief mention of her again in chapter 11. Um, but they're very brief and very much to the side. Her point, though, I think Nakat was making was that uh, Este is involved, even if she's not explicitly mentioned. Uh, every time true. that healing and rest is involved. That's uh, we'll true. see this a couple times in the story of Turin Turambar uh, and some other spots in particular. And of course, that's an excellent point. Uh, we were just talking about explicit mentions. So um, in a way we were right, but in a way we weren't. Uh, she did have some other questions, but they're going to have to wait until their respective chapters for uh, further discussion. Yep. But Tanya also wrote in with another correction for us. You want to handle this one, Sean? I sure can. So uh, thank you, Tanya, for pointing out that last time we mentioned incorrectly that Yavanna and Vana are the only two Valar siblings where we know which one is older and which one is younger. Uh, so uh, we did miss something, uh, something pretty big, actually. <laughs> and pretty obvious. It's, it's pretty obvious, actually, that, uh, that Namo and Irmo, their relationship is also mentioned. And it's very clear in the text that Namo yeah. is the elder of the two brothers and Irmo yeah, is the that. younger we, we missed that one, uh, big one that we missed. So thank you, Tanya. And also, Tanya had some really good ideas about what age might mean for the Ainur. I, I love, mm-hmm. Tanya, I love your, your theory on what it means for beings that are older than time itself. Um, and also, there were a number of really good questions in there that I it do really want to get into. Yeah, that I would love to get into at a future episode. But for yeah, now, this is a meaty. This is a meaty episode. I'm afraid we just probably don't have the time is. to tackle all of those. But uh, that's that's true. But we'll yeah. we'll definitely get to to both Nakats and Tanya's questions really soon. Definitely. But for now, 
I think we do have a question that has been waiting since our very first episode. <laughs> yeah, since uh, since our little debut trailer, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when we first launched, we got this question from Allison M. of Haverhill, Massachusetts. And Allison, I do hope I could pronounce that correctly. Uh, she says, you spoke wisely on topics obviously close to Tolkien's heart and mind. I'd like insight into his difficult concept of death as a gift to mankind. He knew better than most that death is an enemy. So I'm hoping you can shed some light here. Mm. Well, he certainly knew better than most that death is an enemy. He um, lost every one of his friends. Uh, I shouldn't say every one of his friends, but he lost several of his friends uh, by the time he was you know, in his early 20s uh, as right. a result of World War I. And of course, he lost his mother at a very early age and his father even earlier than that. Both of them so, were dead by the time he was 12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a, a really tragic childhood in that context. And certainly he knew that death is an enemy uh, in, in our real world, so to speak. Um, as for this concept of death as a gift to mankind, I really want to dive into this. But <laughs> we're going to be touching on it at the end of the episode. So uh, I just you know want to touch on it that it is a primary theme. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact... Uh, I was just glancing through one of the letters uh, recently, and I found this little passage that I thought was really telling. I, I kind of wish we'd found this when we were doing the uh, Tolkien, reading, Tolkien Reading Day episode. Mm. Um, in a letter in 1956, uh, he's writing to somebody, and he, he's basically talking about what the themes of the story are. And he specifically says, I do not think that even power or domination is the real center of my story. He then goes on to say, The real theme for me is about something much more permanent and difficult, death and immortality, the mystery of the love of the world in the hearts of a race doomed to leave and seemingly lose it, the anguish in the hearts of a race doomed not to leave it until its whole evil-aroused story is complete. Mm. So certainly this is a central concept. So we're going to want to spend a lot of time on that when we get to that subject. So Allison, thank you for framing that question well. Uh, it is it is a difficult concept. It does not fit with yeah. the way we view death, um, really. And that goes for very very many worldviews. Uh, whether you're, uh, you know, you don't have a particular faith, or whether you come from a Christian worldview like Tolkien, or uh, from other world religions, certainly the idea of death as a gift is not uh, something that that will not see. usually something we think of. Yeah, no, it isn't. Uh, and for for a lot of reasons, uh, we fear it even. Uh, even if we don't need to. So we'll, well, and we'll that, touch on that. That reminds me of the words that Arwen spoke to Aragorn. Oh, yeah. In the uh, the, the tale of Aragorn and Arwen that we uh, read. Yes, in that, the she pities, that she pities us now because right. she understands right. what and it's she like says, to face death. That's right. And she says, for if this is indeed, as the Eldar say, the gift of the one to men, it is bitter to receive. Yeah, mm. she's, she's finally understood that concept. And so yeah. uh, it is certainly clear that we it is a bitter gift in a lot of ways. And so uh, certainly to Allison's point, you know, it's, it's very easy to see death as an enemy. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't take, this is one thing that it didn't take Melkor a whole lot of hard work to, to twist this and right. pervert it. Right. Yeah. Indeed. Well, but, we will, uh, yeah, well, we will touch on that for sure. So Allison, I don't, I don't want to tell you that we're punting on that. We're going to get to it at the end of the chapter today. So um, because that's here, we wanted to raise your question and let you know that we will get to it. So uh, in the meantime, let's go ahead and dive into the text. Uh, this is going to be a, a meaty episode. There's a lot of things to talk about. Um, but uh, let's start with, well, start at the very beginning, as they say. I believe it's said that it's a very good place to start. 
<laughs> Very nice. Um, I'll just read a few lines from the first paragraph here uh, on page 35. But in the midst of the war, a spirit of great strength and hardihood came to the aid of the Valar, hearing in the far heaven that there was battle in the little kingdom, and mm-hmm. Arda was filled with the sound of his laughter. Tulkas. Tulkas the mighty arrives. Tulkas the strong. Mm-hmm. Um, love this character. Passes, passes like a mighty wind. <laughs> I love that. Yes. And uh, there's just something about his laughter and his, um, instead of this kind of brooding sort of, uh, I don't know, ticked off sort of guy, he just comes in and he's just a jolly old soul who happens to want to kick happy. He's, butt and he's take laughing, names. laughing while he fights. And I love the fact that he just comes and, well, you haven't said this yet, so I apologize, but he just comes and basically <laughs> scares Melkor away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. And uh, it's uh, and, it's and, just such a great image. He, he, is, he just terrifies him with his own laughter almost. Yeah. And, and Melkor's hate was given to Tulkas forever right. after. Forever after. Um, you know, yeah. I, I feel like Tulkas to me is sort of suggestive of um, this. It's sort of a state of youthful innocence in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact or naivete, if you want to put it a different way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think naivete is a is a another spin on that. Um, I think w- way back in our first episode, we talked about on fairy stories, and, and Tolkien talked about this childlike view of the world that we lose as we mm-hmm. get older, and um, the way that fantasy helps us recover that. Yeah. I, I love the fact that right here at the beginning of the Silmarillion, right. we're meeting this sort of. Maybe childlike is uh, an un, is a, an overstatement. I, you know, yeah. sort of a youthful. I would say <laughs> he certainly is exuberant. But uh, I, I just love that, and and I feel like what we're going to see because this is sort of the uh, this is the youth of Arda, mm-hmm. and he's he's very representative of that. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I'm I'm going to skip ahead a little bit only because I want to stay topical, not so much chronological to the text. I want to come back sure. to the things like the lamps uh, and what we see with Yavanna. But I would just want to see that the next thing that happens, of course, is that is that he gets married. This is the only, you know, we, we know that the others are married. We know that Aule is married to Yavanna and so forth. That's but right. But we, we don't actually, see any actual weddings. Right. Yeah. In this yeah. one we do. In this feast of the spring of Arda, Tulkas espoused Nessa, the sister of Orome, and she danced before the Valar upon the green grass of Almarin. Aw. But I have to say the next, well, okay, I have to say the next line. Is, it's kind of funny. Then Tulkas slept, being weary and content. Oh, wink, yeah. What wink, exactly nudge. is going on there, Alan? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hubba, hubba. <laughs> bow, yeah. chicka, bow, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> but can one do that to a Valar without fear of, like, I don't know, lightning strikes from Manway or something? Um, <laughs> we'll find out once this. Once but this yeah, goes. we'll come back to that point yeah. because uh, something very important happens when Tilkus is taking his little <laughs> yes. post fun nap. But uh, <laughs> right. But well, I definitely I want love- to get into the lamps. De- definitely. And I, but I think that, uh, what I love about the fact that there's a wedding here is we, this is one of the few times we see the Valar happy. Yeah. Truly ha- uh, just having fun. Yeah. We, we talked about, we talked about the fact that their work is tiring and <sighs> that even they yeah. need rest because, you know, running art is a, as a hard job, but here we just see them sort of basking in the, the, the fun exuberance of, of this new creation. It's, it's a, it's very, very cool. It's a very powerful image. Um, well, it's a beautiful place. I mean, a place really we can't is. even conceive in our imagination. This, it's, it's part perfect, of or as close to perfect yeah. as as a material world could be. A symmetrical, beautiful world with these amazing lamps that we're going to get to, and uh, right. just a stunning, stunning place. Uh, and where the light of the lamps blends there in the middle in Almoran, 
Um, right. Just a, a true paradise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's go ahead. I'm going to, I'll have you uh, tell us a little bit about the, um, about the lamps. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no light there yet because the only light up to this point has been the fires of earth itself. Mm. And so um, we see here in the text, and since when the fires were subdued or buried beneath the primeval hills, there was need of light. Mm. Aule at the prayer of Yavanna brought two mighty lamps for the lighting of the middle earth, which he had built amid the encircling seas. Then Varda filled the lamps and Manwe hallowed them. And the Valar set them upon high pillars, more, lo- more lofty far than are any mountains of the later days. Man, they're, so they're really high. I mean, we're talking <laughs> really, really high. Thirty thousand yeah. plus feet. Yeah, I mean, imagine. Yeah, imagine that they are they are high enough that their light illuminates the entire Earth. Yeah, that's a good and point. And the Earth is flat at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, with a round Earth, that would not be possible. Well, but, right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, they are very, very high. Very high. Um, so we see that. Uh, the yeah. lamp in the north is Hold called. On. Before you know, I before we go on, there was something that struck me, and I, I just wanted to grab this. You know, oh, we yeah. talk about teamwork between the Valar. I love. I just kind of caught this. Um, we have the prayer of Yavanna. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. she asks Aule, and then Aule wrought the two mighty lamps. lamps. Yeah, and then Varda fills them, and then Manway hallows them. Oh, that's true. And then yeah. the Valar as a team set them on the pillars. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, really cool. We see that working together. It's yeah. never just one doing their job. Mm-hmm. Each one has a job and it's very and specific it, most of the time, but it's only when they do them all together in concert. Once yeah. again, we see that whole idea of, of harmony, you know, yeah. as opposed to yeah. discord. But anyway, oh, just had to throw that out there. That's very cool. Great catch. Yeah. So the two lamps, there's, uh, there's, so there's one in the North and mm-hmm. that's named Iluin. And there's another in the South and it's named Ormal. And the light of the lamps of the Valar flowed out over the earth so that all was lit, as it were, in a changeless day. So there was no, at this point, there's no night, there's no right. uh, seasons, there's no, it's just, just like noontime. Two, or, yeah, right, or, exactly. Know, mid-morning or whatever it might be, yeah. but it's that way everywhere at all times. Two, everywhere at all times, these two lamps shining. Uh, the only place where we see that there's a slight bit of difference is... And I don't want to say difference, but there's let's consider the light to be sort of a different color. Well, right. <laughs> right in the middle. So you mentioned Almoren, which is the place where the Valar set up their home, which mm-hmm. is actually the geographic center of Arda. Right. And uh, is surrounded by, you know, sort of perfectly symmetrical land masses. Which That's the thing. You can actually say the image. geographic center because it is flat, number one, which you can't flat, really. There's right. no center of the earth. When we now. think of the geographical center of the earth now, we're thinking of the core of the earth the because core, it's the yeah. center of a sphere. But this right. is the center of a the flat center of surface. A disc, the center of a circle. Yeah, and, flat and circle. a symmetrical surface at that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so right here at the center, so this, imagine the center is equidistant from the two lamps, one in the north, one in the south. And so the light of the two lamps is actually blending here mm-hmm. in the middle. Okay. Now, if you're interested in, in the, the nerdy, wor- the word nerd stuff, uh, Illuin actually would have been a blue lamp because it's got the, the word for blue in its name. You are correct. And Ormal is actually golden. So, <laughs> so imagine that right in the middle where Almorin is, there's, I'm that not even really blend. sure what color blue and gold would, you know, probably just this just really white, bright burden nice... green. And maybe, maybe just a sunlight white. Right, uh, right. Or, or maybe, you know, blue and gold, maybe you'd get sort of kind of a lush, you know, kind of bright green. I don't know. But it's, it's got to be a beautiful light that's right there in the center. Yeah. Wow, that's an interesting thought. 
And and this fact that it's a changeless day, you know, I, yeah. I think you just mentioned, Alan, you know, the sort of the symmetry and the perfection of Arda um, here in, in what we are going to call the spring of Arda, um, it is changeless. Mm-hmm. I think the, the Valar, I, I believe, intended it to be perfect and constant and, and oh, yeah. immutable. The, yeah, the, I, it's clear they intended this to be the way it was supposed to be forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we see soon enough that that isn't that, the case. That doesn't last long. No, we get to see the party, of course. Um, as as they were resting from their labors, Manway ordained a great feast. Um, but Melkor knew that this feast was happening. Now, what, why would I talk about a party that only takes up a single paragraph in this chapter when there's a lot of other things to talk about in this chapter? <laughs> I'm going to tell you why, for those of you who are new readers. Let's just say that every time there's a party, interesting things happen. Uh, true. That's very true. Wanna, uh, you know, every time, if you if you read... And it was a time of festival. Cue the spooky music. Read, and read that next paragraph really very carefully. Very carefully. Something's going to happen. Something's about to happen. <laughs> this is this is just how it, yeah. I don't know why that is, but um, yeah. no, but it, it is. And and cer- certainly that's what happens here. Melkor knew all that it was, was done, for even then he had secret friends and spies among the Maiar whom he had converted to his cause. And far off in the darkness, once again, we see the, the typical behavior of Melkor here. Far off in the darkness, he was filled with hatred, being jealous of the work of his peers, whom he desired to make subject to himself. So again, all of those sins of Melkor that we saw back in the Ainulindale, they're repeated here. Yes, so, absolutely. And I and I want to say, remember that sentence because oh yes. I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. Whom he desired to make subject to himself. The the oh filled the with hatred, yeah. darkness filled with hatred, jealous of the work of his peers, and yes. desire to make subject to himself. Remember those three characteristics. Okay, that's all I'll say right now. Oh, ooh, even I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued. So he gathered to himself spirits out of the halls of Ea that he had perverted to his service, and he deemed himself strong. So at this point, he goes ahead. And he he draws near to Arda, draws near to the earth, and looked down upon it, and the beauty of the earth in its spring filled him the more with hate. We all know somebody like that, right? These people who no, they just they just they just want to be angry all the time. They just want to be mad at everything good that happens. Exactly, in the world. and and if one person has something really good, they get even more mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we see this word, you know, jealousy applied to Melkor so many mm-hmm. times. Yeah. So, uh, so when they were gathered upon Almer and fearing no evil, uh, they did not perceive the shadow in the north. Uh, in that feast, of course, this is what we just talked about earlier. Tulkus marries Nessa. Then he slept. <laughs> Melkor deemed that his hour had come. You can do that all night. I'll, I'll, I'll laugh every time. We do need some sound effects, don't we? We do. We really we maybe do. Maybe have a, like a, you know, wow, wow, sort of. Well, except Aouda. really. Aouda. <laughs> when would we ever use that again, though? That's the only problem. I don't know. <laughs> that, that, that is true. I mean, we and, could use it horribly inappropriately during Baron and Luthien. But we would get so much email. Yeah, let's. let's We're even going to get email now, aren't we? We probably are. We're going to get people telling us you can't go there. Yeah, let's move on. Okay, (laughs) moving on, moving on. So um, he he gets up there in the far north. You know, we talked about the lights blending in the middle. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, we can also surmise, since the light travels out in a circle, that the light of the southern lamp doesn't get to the north, and the light of the northern lamp doesn't get to the south. So he's in an area in one of the, the polar regions, if you will. Uh, that obviously gets a little bit less light, and he's able to kind of sneak in there, and he creates the stronghold named Utumno. Utumno, and this Such next a word of foreboding. Oh, isn't it? It just it sounds again. This is Tolkien in his wordcraft making words that sound 
like the things they describe. Mm-hmm. It sounds dark and sinister. It does, doesn't it? You, nobody's going, hey, man, there's a party down at a tomb, though. You want to go? Mm, I think I'll pass. Yeah, right. Um, uh, another <laughs> word nerd comment here. Yes. So this word, utumno, is the Quenya form of uh, the Sindarin word, udun, which Gandalf Ooh. mentions when he is on the bridge with the Balrog, You're when he calls right. Balrog flame of udun. Yes. Um, so, yes, he does. Yeah. I did. That makes sense. That does. And what does that, do we happen to know what that root means or am I asking you too much word nerdy stuff? Uh, I I've seen it translated as hell. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that's a little too on the nose, but <laughs> that might be, <laughs> I think I've, I, I, maybe I'm thinking of Thangoradrim in this sense, but, um, or maybe Angband. One of them is, is prison. I think it's Angband, isn't it? Angband is a uh, prison of iron. That's it. Prison of iron. Yeah. Ah, <sighs> Well, we'll get there soon enough, won't we? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we're, we keep <laughs> um, sidetracking. I'm sorry. Too many we, fun words. Uh, no, what we see now, though, is is the result of Melkor's return. It isn't the big, strong, you know, forceful power of Melkor coming down into open battle. No, we start to see oh, no. these subtle things. The the blight of his hatred flows out from Atumno, and the spring of Arda was marred. Green things fell sick and rotted, mm-hmm. and rivers were choked with weeds and slime. And fens were made, rank and poisonous, the breeding place of flies. And forests grew dark and perilous, the haunts of fear. And beasts became monsters of horn and ivory, and dyed the earth with blood. Then the Valar knew indeed that Melkor was at work again, and they sought for his hiding place. Without going too far afield, I have to say that kind of reminded me a little bit, again, thinking of Tolkien's worldview, of the results of the fall of Adam, of the sin of Adam in terms Hmm. of the world. So I'll just let those, those who are familiar with it, will get what I'm talking about. Um, But just the idea that there were physical effects on the world as a result of this, you know, the entry of evil. And that's what we have here is the entry of evil. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. You know, for me, what it reminded me of just um, within the text itself, even it reminds me so much of the Aina Lindale and how Melkor's, even at the beginning when Melkor started singing his discordant theme, yeah. this this blight just spread out around him. I think blight was my word, uh, not Tolkien's, but I think I used it when we talked about it before. Um, but this, this just sort of discord and, and ugliness just sort of surrounded him and made it hard for even the other Ainur around him who yeah. wanted to keep to Iluvatar's theme. It made exactly. them hard for them to do so. And so you really see this sort of this spread of um, of his evil. It, yeah. it, there's there's no other word for it. No, there really isn't. That's a good point. I, you're right. That that sort of resultant spread, that mm-hmm. that subtle or not so subtle as the case may be, um, it, that, that permeates, that gets out there, and that makes it very difficult even for good to do good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and yeah, that's right. It's and it's just this sort of noxious, infectious thing that just poisons everything around it. And we see those words specifically in this passage. Yeah. Well, and, and one last thing before I let you, I know I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, Yavanna and the, and the birth of the plants. It means we're going back again. We're trying to say subject related here, but this is, you know, we've been talking about the symmetry of the land. This is where we get that the later in that paragraph in the overthrow of these mighty pillars, lands were broken and seas arose in tumult. And when the lamps were spilled, destroying flame was poured out over the earth and the mm-hmm. shape of Arda and the symmetry of its waters and its lands was marred in that time. So that the first designs of the Valar were never after restored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, this perfect world 
was not going to be perfect. And it was destined never to be perfect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the Iluvatar certainly would have known it, but the Valar did not. No, no. They um, knew they needed to create this place and they did not they did not know that part of that creation meant seeing it destroyed and having to rebuild. Right. Well, and there's something very important there about uh, the limitations of the Valar themselves uh, in two ways. First of all, the fact that they didn't know that yeah. perfection would be uh, sustainable within right. Arda. Um, so they're limited in their knowledge. I think we've talked before about the fact that they are not omniscient. Not omniscient. No, well, they um, would have known about Melkor's return. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point. Yeah. Melkor would never have been able to that sneak is, by an omniscient manway. That is that is very true. Um, and, and also, by the same token, they're not omnipotent. Uh, it, it, no. The text specifically says that uh, the first designs of the Valar were never after restored. Yeah. One of the things we're going to see throughout the Silmarillion is that there are certain works of creation or sub-creation mm -hmm. that can never be repeated. Yeah. They can only be done once. Yeah. And the, the, this perfection Restoration of Arda is not always is the, possible. Right. And yeah. the destruction of the lamps and the, and the perfection of Arda is, one of, is really the first one of those. It's sort of the first fall, if you will. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's because the Valar are not omnipotent um, any, any more really than elves or men are. They, they certainly have a, a larger source of power. Oh, to yeah, draw much, from, much more. But they are, they are still uh, not omnipotent. By no, they're, and they're, so. they're finite. They, they exist Absolutely. where they exist. You Absolutely. Know, you know, we talk about Manwe and Varda being able to see and hear further. That, that they're not omnipresent either. Right, uh, that's true. Ulmo, you know, is a little bit more present because of his ability to – you know, travel through the waters, but he's still not everywhere at once. That's why he's right. got, I'll say, an Uinen to help him. But uh, right, right, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit then. I want to hear you uh, talk about. We'll go back to the. I think it's the third paragraph talking about the mm -hmm. seeds of Yavanna. Talk, talk to us mm -hmm. about that a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, Yavanna is one of my favorites of the Valar. Mm -hmm. uh, we see here that. Uh, so yes, uh, the paragraph, the text says, "Then the seeds that Yavanna had sown began swiftly to sprout into burgeon." And there arose a multitude of growing things, great and small, mosses and grasses and great ferns, and trees whose tops were crowned with cloud as they were living mountains, but whose feet were wrapped in a green twilight. And beasts came forth and dwelt in the grassy plains, or in the rivers and the lakes, or walked in the shadows of the woods. I'll stop there, because this is the first time that we see that Yavanna is not only responsible for plants and trees, which we talked about last time, it's very clear. She's described mm -hmm. in sort of tree-like terms, and she's, oh, yeah. she's always associated with things that grow in the earth, yeah. uh, what, what, the, um, what the elves call Olvar, and I hope that I'm, <laughs> I hope that I'm getting that one right again. Versus, Olvar, versus the Kelvar. Versus yeah. the Kelvar. Um, but we, we also see that she is, uh, I think it's hinted here that she's responsible for the Kelvar as well, the animals or the beasts, yes. uh, or, or at least many of them. And um, you had uh, you had some insights on the next. Well, yeah, I, I wasn't sure. You know, at first I thought, OK, we're talking about seeds that she had sown. So I mean, clearly we're talking about the plant material. We're talking sure, about the yeah. grasses and the, the big, big trees, everything from the mosses all the way up to the, the huge trees that we can't even conceive right. now. Plants I mean, of all of all sizes, really. Yeah. I mean, these make sequoias look like toothpicks. Um, <laughs> but then when she talks, when the text says that and beasts came forth and dwelt in the grassy plains. I wasn't certain that this was related to that. I mean, I was thinking, okay, well, the beasts came from someplace else, but they were dwelling and eating the grass that Yvonne had planted or whatever. But then I see, as yet no flower had bloomed, nor mm -hmm. any bird had sung, for these things waited still their time in the bosom of Yvonne. So the birds are even in the bosom of Yvonne in this case. Right. So 
So one has to think that the beasts are definitely in her purview. I mean, it's, I think so. it's more of an implication, but it seems like a very strong implication, especially when we take it in conjunction with what we will read in the next chapter, um, mm-hmm. where it does seem that she has some sort of involvement uh, with the Kelvar, because, uh, and again, this is not truly a spoiler since we're going to talk to it, talk about it next week, but just to fill this out, um, Manwe uh, says specifically um, uh, about dominion, what are the things, um, if thou hadst thy will, what would thou reserve of all thy realm? What dost thou hold dearest? And she talks about the Kelvar and the Olvar. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that she really is not just in charge of the plant life, but also the animal life. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Amazing stuff. <laughs> He's got oh, it yeah. all covered, doesn't he? He really does. Yeah, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't miss a trick. No. Um, well, let's see. So we've, we've touched on the arrival of Tulkus and, and then his marriage. We've talked about the lamps. We've talked about uh, that, that perfect world, the way it was and the way it'll never be again. Uh, and then, of course, the birth of the plants and the trees and now even the beasts. Um, we're actually making good progress. We might get to some stuff I didn't think we'd get to. <laughs> no. uh, but we are going to get to That would be new. <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm used to saying, sorry, folks, guess we're going to have to cover that next time. Yep. Um, the establishment yeah. and geography of Valinor. There's a lot of oh, information this here. Is, this is such good stuff. You want to you get us started here? Uh, sure, well, I can yeah. do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so we're on page 37 here. Yep. So Almorin has just been destroyed. And the text says uh, of the Valar, Therefore they departed from Middle-earth and went to the land of Amman, the westernmost of all lands upon the borders of the world. Uh, for its west shores looked upon the outer sea, that is called by the elves Echaia, encircling the kingdom of Arda. I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, so the Valar are leaving Middle-earth. They're moving west. But they're they're staying on Earth. They're, they're yeah, on Arda, they're, yeah. On Arda, yeah. Um, Amman is the westernmost continent on yeah. Arda. Remember, this flat Arda, the westernmost continent. So it's right on the edge of the world. Mm-hmm. To the west is the encircling outer sea. Um, this Achaia is a, really, really a cool concept. I, I, I don't think we see nearly enough of the encircling sea. No, but, I wish uh, we, it's, not, yeah. yeah, it's sort of this ethereal um, sort of cosmic sea that envelops the earth, which um, yeah. I think we, you get a little bit more of in some of the, the deep cuts of the history of Middle Earth, but, uh, <laughs> the but not enough here. Yeah, yeah. the B-sides. <laughs> but uh, so it's got the outer sea on the west. And, and I think uh-huh. what's important about that is that is the boundary of Arda to the yes. west. And it's got the. It's also bounded by the Great Sea of Belagair, uh in the east, and that's between Middle Earth and Amman. Right, right. And, you know, so just, Middle- a, just a heads up for those who've never read this before, and I know we have several first time readers. Just a reminder: Middle Earth is not the world. Middle Earth is just that continent. Correct. You know, we've talked before about the difference between Ea and Arda. The fact that you know one is all of creation, including the, you know the universe itself, mm-hmm. and then Arda is just is the Earth. Well, Middle Earth isn't the planet. Middle Earth is just the continent. Correct, right? Amman is yeah. this other continent. So, right. We're, we're so don't don't get the idea that we're dealing with different planes of existence here. Uh, no, well, Amman is <laughs> not yet true. True spoilers, but um, <laughs> but yeah, they they are at this point they are two continents on mm-hmm. that that you can you can actually sail between them on on the right. Sea of Belagair. So so they've moved to Middle Earth, and let's see. I'm going to go on and read a little bit more yeah, if I may. Yeah, please do. And since Melkor was returned to Middle-earth, and they could not yet overcome him, 
And this is just later on in that same paragraph I was in. More evidence of that lack of omnipotence, by the way. Right. That's true. That's true. The Valar fortified their dwelling, and upon the shores of the sea they raised the Pelori, the mountains of Amman, highest upon earth. And above all the mountains of the Pelori was that height upon whose summit Manwe set his throne. Teniquitil, the elves named that holy mountain, and Oyolose, everlasting whiteness, and Elerina, crowned with stars, and many names beside. But the Sindar spoke of it in their later tongue as Amon Ulos. From their halls upon Teniquitil, Manwe and Varda could look out across the earth, even into the furthest east. And, and I did. read that... Yeah, that's the whole thing. They may have left Middle-earth, but they're looking back at it. Absolutely. That's, that's Yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to get that last sentence in there, because mm-hmm. um, don't get the idea that they're hightailing it. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're building a fortress against Melkor, is what sure. they're doing. Uh, Achaia is to their west. It's it's the boundary of the earth. Melkor can't get around them to the back. No. So they're protected from the back by the encircling sea, and they're going to protect themselves to the east by raising this fence of mountains, this this wall yeah. of mountains, the Pelori. But again, they're not building a wall between Valinor and Middle Earth. No. Uh, Valinor, I'm sorry, being the realm that they've built. Um, so Amon is the continent. Valinor is the realm. They've not built a wall between. Uh, their realm in Middle Earth, they're they're building a, a watchtower. Mm-hmm. That's Teniquitil. a good way of doing it. Yeah, it's 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 the. I mean, and think of this. So these are the highest mountains on Arda, and Teniquitil is the highest peak <laughs> of those mountains. Yeah, mind-boggling how how high this must be. And that's and, where Manwe and Varda live. And that's when Manwe and Varda. That's where Manwe and Varda live exactly. And so they are they are able to watch out over the Earth to the east and. And see what's going on. And mm-hmm. again, we talked about they don't see everything. You know, their their no. gaze can't their their gaze can see through the air. They can't you know pierce through earth and things like that. But um, but when they're together, they can see farther through the open air than anyone else, uh, any other eyes can see, and hear farther than any other ears can hear. Well, we do see something later, though. You're talking about they can't you know pierce the the rocks. Um, I, I just want to go to this because it's it's kind of key, and we it touches on something we talked about, but. Um, this is starting at the very bottom of page 39. But Manwe Sulimo, highest and holiest of the Valar, sat upon the borders of Amon, forsaking mm-hmm. not in his thought the outer lands. That's referring to Middle-earth. For his throne was set in majesty upon the pinnacle of Taniquetil. I'm sorry, Taniquetil. <laughs> the Martin Shaw pronunciation <laughs> just jumped up and bit me in the kneecaps. Uh, the highest of the mountains of the world, standing upon the margin of the sea. Spirits in the shape of hawks and eagles flew ever to and from his halls, and their eyes could see to the depths of the seas and pierce the hidden caverns beneath the world. Thus they brought word to him of well-nigh all that passed in Arda. Yet some things were hidden even from the eyes of Manwe and the servants of Manwe, for where Melkor sat in his dark thought, impenetrable shadows lay. Okay. So the, the so eagles could help him see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that also brings up something else that's pretty cool. Spirits in the shape of hawks and eagles. Mm-hmm. Now we'll, we'll probably get more into this at another read, you know, in a different chapter when we're talking maybe more about the eagles. But it sure does raise the question of whether the eagles are beasts or whether they are perhaps Maya. Some, are they, some are they Maya? Spirits. Right. Um, yeah. Or some other spirits. The is there a third yeah. tier beneath the Valar and the Maya? I mean, we're certainly right. never given one explicitly. Uh, so if we're not given one explicitly, then and we had to fit them into one of the two, uh, then clearly they'd be, they'd be Maya. 
which is mm-hmm. an interesting concept. That That is a very enticing concept. I know. I can't wait to discuss that more as we find more of the Eagles. I think as we, yeah, as they play a bigger role, I think we'll dive more into that. But anyway, I wanted to, to raise that because it was relevant to what you just said about, uh, um, you know, about Manway and his ability to see, yeah, to yeah. see anywhere. No, that, that's cool. And, and that actually does, um, I, I, I oversimplified when I said they can't see through, uh, through earth and so forth. Um, so yeah, that's a, a good clarification. They can't see through all of the earth. Like the text says, you know, right. the, where Melkor is, the shadows are just too deep. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And again, you know, limits, limits to the power. Now I do want to point out one more thing. We're getting, uh, we're getting close oh, to we are. the trees, we but are. before we get there, I want to just point out. So, um, so we're looking at a literal guard tower at Tiniquidil and the the home of Manway and Varda, you know, the, the first family of the Valar <laughs> is is up there on top of it. And I love this idea because it's not the only time we see a royal residence being atop a guard tower in Tolkien's world. That is and, true. And I'm thinking of Minas Tirith. Yes, indeed. Uh, in Lord of the Rings. Um, the up on the seventh city. circle at the very top of the right. top of the mountain, Mandalawan. Right. Right, right, and uh, and there's the residence of the kings uh, at the top of that, and that is that serves a similar function, I think. Obviously, it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a uh, an yeah. edifice of men, but it's it, it's similarly it a, watchtower a watchtower watching over the east. Absolutely. In fact, uh, in fact, I believe Minas Tirith actually means watchtower or tower, or tower of guard, guard or something like tower that. Tower of guard, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you they could see from uh, from the from from where the Lebanon went into the sea. All the way down, you know, all the way up uh, through Athelion, uh, and then into where um, the lands of Rohan begin. And I can't recall could they could they actually see into Mordor from the top of Mandalorian, or where Mordor. the where the mountains too high? Yeah, the the mountains uh, of Shadow would have been too high. They would have okay. been able to see across. Um, you know, they would have seen certainly the the volcanic activity of Mount Doom. Uh, sure, they would have seen the storms and things like that. But no, they wouldn't have seen into Mordor. Right, but. Uh, no. Yeah, interesting so, stuff. Know. Yeah, no, cool very stuff. good point. Very good point. Well, before we get to the trees, because we're kind of touching subject-wise, I wanted to to go a little bit more into the geography and kind of layout of things in in uh, in Valinor. Oh, yeah. You just you just talked about Valinor being the realm, and that's important. So behind the walls of these mountains, they established their domain in that region, which is called Valinor. That's where their houses were, their gardens, their towers. And in that guarded land, they gathered great store of light and all the fairest things that were saved from the ruin. Talking about the ruin of, uh, of Almeren. Uh, many, others, many other things, that is, yet fairer they made anew. And Valinor became more beautiful even than Middle-earth in the spring of Arda. So, wow. Even <clears throat> more beautiful than perfection, I suppose. And it was blessed for the deathless dwelt there. And they not faded nor withered, neither was there any stain upon flower or leaf in that land, nor any corruption or sickness in anything that lived, for the very stones and waters were hallowed. But as we'll find out in a chapter much, much later, it is not the the fact that the land is hallowed that makes the Valar immortal. It is the fact that the Valar are immortal that that hallows the land. And that's very key. That is is very key later on, because there Mm -hmm. are going to be some who misunderstand that. Oh, very much so. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So we have in the middle of the plain... So the, the mountains, the, the Pylori, and then you have a plain behind that, uh, that that plain then goes all the way to the encircling sea. So in the middle of that plain is a city called Valmar. Mm-hmm. Valmar of many bells. Valmar of many bells. Before its western gate, so it has a gate that looks west back towards, um, or I'm sorry, 
towards towards the encircling sea, actually. So it is it is not looking back towards the Pylori. Uh, there is a green mound, a Zelohar. Uh, Yavanna hallows it. Now we'll get the, the rest I'm going to leave alone because that's all the tree stuff. But I just wanted to mention that because <laughs> that's where the trees are. That's going to be key. Um, then also in the midst of the blessed realm are the mansions of Aule. Uh, and in the making of all things in that land, he had the chief part. He wrought there many beautiful and shapely works, both openly and in secret. And we're going to learn about some of those secret works in the next chapter. Um, yes. He's the guy where all the lore and knowledge of the earth comes from. So whether you're a craftsman, a, a weaver, a, a wood, uh, you know, a shaper of wood, as the text says, a worker in metals, all of those people get their information from Aule. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really interesting because it tells us the whole story in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of that paragraph, after he talks about how the Noldor learned from him, the Noldor also it was who first achieved the making of gems, and the fairest of all gems were the Silmarils, and they are lost. Well, I guess we can start I, with I Lord guess we of the Rings tomorrow. There. Yeah. <laughs> the I rest of the book is we're all about here. that. So I'd say spoiler alert, but it really isn't a spoiler if the text gives it away, is it? Right. No, no that's true. It certainly isn't. But it. Well, it's, uh, I think it goes to the heart of, you know, obviously this book is called The Silmarillion. Yes. And I've translated Quinta Silmarillion as the history of the Silmarils. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're going to be a big part of it. I, I love the fact that even in the beginning, though we are starting with a very lofty paradise on earth, you know, before the elves were born kind of situation right. here, we were already seeing the foreshadowing of, of the Silmarils. So, Tolkien is already bringing the Silmarils into the story because yeah. they are they are so important. But he even tells us what happens. He doesn't. He, you know, and even I, right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I really found that interesting that he didn't just say, you know, that the um, going back to use the words that, that he uses, um, eh, the fairest of all gems were the Silmarils. Period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, he includes and they are lost. And they are lost. Yeah. So. Well, because nothing fair can last, can it? No, nothing. Nothing fair can last. That's true. Uh, it, Unless it's created by Luvatar. True, true. So, um, okay, so more about uh, the location. I mean, we just talked about Manway and Varda living at the top of, uh, of Taniquatil. I, uh, I want to... Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I want to point out one other thing, but uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm really having trouble finding it in the text right now. So maybe well, sure. you can find it, or maybe, maybe somebody can. listening can write in <laughs> and what, tell me where it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody listening later can write in and just, you know, we'll... we'll Put it up on on the website or Facebook or something. Okay, but I believe there's something that says that west of Azelahar. So you talked about the Western Gate. There's you know, the, well, west of that, I believe we hear that the halls of Mandos are there, and I yeah. can't I can't find that now. But anyway, we, we do know that they are farther to the west. They're right up against right, right up against, against the, the edge encircling of the, seas the encircling because, sea in the, in because the, you can actually look west. Uh, over the yeah, over, out, out yeah, to nothing, out out to the edge of the of the earth, basically. Yeah. Um, well, I, I can't find it, but if anybody's listening to this and uh, and can find it for me, send us a message and <laughs> tell me where it is, because I will I, find the answer for you, Sean. I promise by the next episode. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I I just know that the houses of the dead. We just know that he dwells in Mandos, which is westward in Valinor. Mm-hmm. That's what we know. Um, but yeah, you're you're right that. Um, I know that there's, well, let's see. Yeah. It's Nienna's house that look outward from the walls of the world, but certainly, um, Oh boy. 
Yeah, All right, well, I know. Yeah. I got that same thing in my head, and I can't quite figure I, out where I got it from. We'll and find I, it. And I re- well, I remember a note from Christopher Tolkien in uh, in the history of Middle Earth about um, you know some some thoughts he had on whether the halls of Mandos were truly west or whether maybe they were sort of northwest. We don't have to get into all that, but I, anyway, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about the geography of Amman and, uh, and trying to put together where everything is in my head, kind of yeah. draw a little, um, a map or diorama of it in my head. Well, yeah, even in, uh, uh, Karen Fonstad's Atlas of Middle Earth, which is probably the best single source for cartography of Middle Earth, um, Valinor is still pretty vague. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we get some information, but it's, it's not very detailed. Yeah, uh, we certainly don't have any context of uh, any concept of scale. We have no idea right. how far That's it is true. from the Pylori to Valmar. We have no idea how it is, how far it is from Valmar to Mandos. We have no idea how far it is from Nienna to where Tulkus lives. I mean, you know, right. So anyway, uh, we don't even know where Tulkus lives. <laughs> we just we just know that it's a party all the time. It's man. a party. <laughs> party pad. <laughs> well, so we've talked about where Aule lives. We've talked about where Manway lives. Uh, and then we've, now we get to Ulmo. And this is really interesting because again, we, we recap some of the information we learned in Valaquenta that, that he doesn't come to Valinor unless there's need for a great council. He dwells in the outer ocean and still dwells there and governs the flowing of all waters. There's a couple of little interesting things we get here. First of all, that the Teleri learn much of Ulmo. Mm-hmm. And for this reason, their music has both sadness and enchantment. And we get a name of another Maya and who, by we the way, I, I wanted. Again. Go ahead. Oh, well, I'd want to. I want to throw out one little thing. So we've talked about the Noldor, the Vanyar, and the Teleri at yes. this point. The First Noldor time readers, being close to Aule. Yeah. Right. Vanyar being close to Manwe and Teleri being close to Ulmo. Yep. I just want to point out for any first-time readers. So these are actually three kindreds of yeah. elves. We will get to that very, very soon. Right. Right. Um, but just in case anybody's wondering, well, who, who, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's it's worth throwing out there. But anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get that in, not in the next chapter, but in, in chapter three. Very soon. Yeah. The elves. yeah, we will get to that very soon. So within within a month. Uh, but yeah, those are the three kindreds. And you'll see that each one kind of gets closer to one of the Valar, that mm-hmm. the, the Vanyar get close to Manway, the Noldor being very much craftsmen, obviously take a shining to Aule, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the Teleri who, are the, who end up being the shipwrights. Right. Uh, they end up being, of course, very close to Ulmo. Yep. We learned the name of another Maya. I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. I don't know how I missed it, but a, but a, a <laughs> Maya by the name of Salmar, Salmar came with Ulmo to Arda. He who made the horns of Ulmo that none may ever forget who once has heard them. Uh, I love the name of the horns. What are the they again? Ulumuri. The Ulumuri. Ulumuri. The Ulumuri. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I, know, I, know that, I don't think Salmar is mentioned ever again, is he? No, no, I, I, and I don't think I'd ever even knew the name. And I've read the Silmarillion <laughs> like more than a dozen times. How did I miss Salmar? Just yeah. skimming, I guess. I don't know. How do I not read every word? But um, so, yeah, but, but this is the key stuff with Ulma that we really want to hold on to. And I think this is where you wanted to tie something in at the end of that paragraph. And to all who were lost in that darkness, that is the darkness that Melkor caused or who wandered far from the light of the Valar, the ear of Ulmo was ever open, nor has he ever forsaken Middle-earth, and whatsoever may sense have befallen of ruin or of change, he has not ceased to take thought for it, and will not until the end of days. Mm-hmm. And that's something you were talking about, the uh, Melkor sitting in darkness, and then I right. think you were going to tie this in, huh? Well, because this paragraph is filled with 
very dark and terrifying imagery. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember that Ulmo is, is you know, he's, he's water, he's the seas, and the seas are, you know, dark and, and terrifying, uh, you know, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's also just the, the depth and the, you know, our inability to, to see, you know, through the sea anyway. Well, so true. all of that stuff is wrapped up with Ulmo, but I think what's very important here is that though he is terrible and though he is, there's talk of sorrow unfathomed that he's associated mm. with. Um, and we even joked in our last episode that he would have been a good match for Nienna, but, but also <laughs> like Nienna, he is, he is not full of despair. No, he's, he is darkness without despair. In fact, Hmm, Earlier in the paragraph that you were just reading from, it, it says that um, it was by the power of Ulmo that even under the darkness of Melkor, life coursed still through many secret hmm. loads, and the earth did not die. Yeah. And then that goes right into the passage you just read. So yeah. it, you know, it, imagine that even when when Melkor made the the lands unsafe for living creatures, you know, because he had thrown down the lamps and uh, imagine fire coursing all over the land. Oh yeah, beneath. Beneath the sea, there was still life, and Ulmo was responsible for, for keeping that, um, keeping that life uh, afloat. <laughs> it's probably a stupid oh, pun to use there, but, <laughs> um, but, so I think that's really important because he, again, it's it's that it's that idea that there is there's hope. Ulmo is associated with with hope in not as explicitly as Nienna is, but I think in in this sense certainly he is, and so. Let me go back then to what we said about Melkor at the beginning of the of the episode. Sure. So there's that earlier passage that I think you read that says that Melkor, far off in the darkness, he was filled with hatred, being yes. jealous of the work of his peers, whom he desired to make subject to himself. So Melkor was dark and filled with hatred, jealous of his peers, desired to make subject to himself. So we've seen that Ulmo dwells alone in darkness, not with hatred. But with love, mm-hmm. love for life love for on Arda, Earth. life for Middle Earth, uh, love for Middle Earth, yeah. love for the children of Iluvatar. Uh, we saw in Manway's paragraph that I don't know if we read the passage, but in the Manway's paragraph, the text says that Manway wielded power without jealousy. Yes, rules all and, to peace. Right. And we've seen that Aule seeks knowledge, but there's something in there about him not seeking to use that knowledge to control. And so these three traits that the text highlights in the three chiefs of the Valar are the exact opposite of the description of Melkor at the beginning of the chapter, even oh, using the same words. Point. You're right. Yeah. And, and so it's, yeah, we, it's, again, I, I think of these, these four Valar, the, the three good ones and, and Melkor are so closely tied together, um, both in Definitely. sort of the, the elemental way that we talked about last time, but also in, in Melkor being the inverse of uh, of these, you know, mm-hmm. these three chiefs of of the good Valar, and that's the key. But, it's Melkor that's the inverse of them, not the other way around. Because as right. we talked about before, evil is a negation of good, not a right. thing of its own. Right. Excellent. So, some I, excellent points. I loved that. I really, yeah, that's good. I I had not seen how each of those three traits of Melkor were negated by the way these three uh, Valar conducted themselves. Mm-hmm. So we know that Ulmo didn't abandon Middle-earth, neither did Yavanna. Tell us about that. Correct. Uh, yep, we do see that she loves all things that grow, and she was unwilling to forsake the Outer Lands, so Outer Lands being uh, Middle-earth. 
she really did, I think, want to stay in Middle Earth because that's where you know so much life was. And she did come back to Middle-earth quite frequently. And I love this. It says, returning to, to Valinor, she mm-hmm. would ever urge the Valar to that war with his evil dominion, Melkor's, right. that they must surely wage ere the coming of the firstborn. You know, so, she doesn't strike me as one to be, you know, blowing the war horn. You know? A warmonger. She's, she's not, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. I never no, thought of her as a, as a hawk, more of a dove. Um, yeah. But she's but, right. Yeah. But she's, but she, you know, it, well, it's, it would be a... A war of necessity, yeah. really. I mean, she's and it would destroy more of her domain, really, than it would of any of the others. When you think about that's it, that's true. Think I about mean, that sacrifice that she's yeah she's, she's willing to make, but she knows that it's necessary because of the coming of the firstborn. That yeah. they need they need to clean up the world, which is what this is all about. This world before, isn't just their sandbox for them to play it and do cool right. things. Their right. whole purpose is to create a dwelling place for the children. Right, right, which and we'll, so they we'll they to. really need to kind of get it in shape before the elves are going to be born. Well, there's one last one. And she's not the only one. Yeah. No, that's the thing. I love this. Uh, we're going to talk about Orome here. Uh, and I'll just actually read this the, this text here. And Orome, tamer of beasts, would ride too at whiles in the darkness of the unlit forests. As a mighty hunter, he came with spear and bow, pursuing to the death the monsters and fell creatures of the kingdom of Melkor. And his white horse, Nahar, shone like silver in the shadows. Hmm. Then the sleeping earth trembled at the beat of his golden hooves. And in the twilight of the world, Orome would sound the Valaroma, his great horn upon the plains of Arda, whereat the mountains echoed and the shadows of evil fled away, and Melkor himself quailed in a tumno, foreboding the wrath to come. Love that. Love Once again, that. Orome gets that just tremendous language. He's, um, yeah. he's or- this majestic. Ter- he's terrifying to evildoers. Oh yeah, he's he's. Uh, there's a couple of times where the word wrath is used of him. He's uh, if if Tulkas is the yeah. is the 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 clown. Yeah, Orme fights with <laughs> wrath. You would not like him when he's angry. No, no, his his brow furrows, and you better get out of the way. He's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I love that. I love that the idea that there are these these really these two Valar specifically, Tulkas and Orme, who just terrify Melkor. Mm-hmm. He just, he's... Well, and then Varda, too. Here. I mean, <laughs> well, that's funny. true. There's... On an individual level, he seems afraid of all of them. <laughs> and yet true. they seem a little hesitant to take him out early on. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean... <laughs> I think it speaks to the fact that they're better people than he is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as as we'll see later, there's some, there's almost this refusal to recognize evil for what it is. Um, I, I think we see... Born that. out of, well, yeah, we see it explicitly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, born out of a of a nature that just can't comprehend that level of evil. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> now, however, I want to hear about the trees. This is where I get to sit back and just listen to you talk. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll pipe in now and then. And Don't worry. I, th- I thank you for giving me this one because it's, it's really, I don't, I, I, there's it's one of the most important concepts in the Silmarillion or the, really the entire Middle Earth Legendarium. Yeah, yeah it's huge. Uh, if you If you take... One or two things away from this episode, make this one of them yeah. for sure. Yeah, they're so, really, yeah, this is one of the two big themes of this chapter. Absolutely. So I am going back to, we are on page top, uh, 38. 38. Yeah. Top page 38. So uh, you've already kind of talked a little bit about Valmar. I'm going to yes. go back to the Western Gate. Okay. Uh, but first, I'm going to remind everybody. So again, remember, the lamps have been destroyed. Arda has no light except for the stars, and the Valar need light. And um, 
they've certainly got Varda, but I don't think she can just walk around like a lantern for everybody. You know? <laughs> her, her shining her face on on Al is, you know, hold the flashlight for me, Varda. You know, I don't, I don't think he can do that while he's working. So <laughs> we are really disrespecting the Valar today. I know, we're, we're just taking a look. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We love the Valar. Somebody, um, I don't remember who, but somebody <laughs> wrote in and, and, and I, oh man, it's going to kill me. I have to look it up. But one of our, our listeners wrote in and basically said, um, you know, the next time you put their words in the vernacular, it's, you know, please don't do it. It makes me laugh too hard or <laughs> right, right, something yeah. like that. And, and I'm thinking, oh boy, uh, this is going to be a long podcast because we're <laughs> right. going to, we're going to put gonna a lot of this a, in the vernacular. We're going to do that a lot. <laughs> so anyway, so they need light and, um, and you know, they, yeah. well, they're going to create some. So going back it's not, to the It's top not of pitch black life. though, because. No, you, there's the stars. Before, yeah. Well, it's not just the stars. Uh, right before that, uh, behind the walls of the Polori, they gathered great store of light and all the fairest things that were saved from the ruins. So oh, somehow there must have been a little bit. I just don't know what its source would have been. Yeah, you are correct. That's right. Well, that's a good, good question. Um, I Maybe wonder it's just if some it, night lights. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, I wonder if they may have found you know because remember we we saw that sort of the earth was covered in flame after Melkor tipped the lamps over. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if maybe they were able to collect some of that. I don't know. I'm yeah. totally speculating here. Well, yeah, it's all speculation at that point. Yeah. So anyway, so they need a, a more significant source of light. So we're back at Valmar. And I'm going to read now. Yes. Before its western gate, there was a green mound, a Zelahar that is also named Coralire, and Yavanna hallowed it. And she sat there long upon the green grass and sang a song of power in which was set all her thought of things that grow in the earth. But Nienna thought in silence and watered the molds with tears. Now, I do want to stop there because I think that there's something really important there that that we need to talk about. So, yeah. um, Yavanna is the, the primary instrument at work here. And uh, she is singing. So we're, you know, yeah. kind of back to this, this sort of sub-creative music of the, of the Ainur here. But she's not alone. Uh, no. Nienna is is there with her. I kind of imagine her by her side, mm-hmm. um, and she's thinking in silence and watering the mold with her tears. It's it's this harmony. I think you you spoke earlier about the the Valar working together to create the lamps. You see right. that a bit here again. The Valar working together to create what they're uh, what they're about to create, which is the two trees, and um, yeah. Again, I just think it's it's evidential of the fact that the the Valar and really everyone in, in Middle Earth, they're always stronger when they work together. Yeah. But but you had some some things to say before we well yeah we were off air about Nienna specifically about Nienna because I I want to let you take the take the lead on this but Nienna I think it's really easy to overlook because we hear you know we see that Yavanna hallowed uh, the mound as Elohar and mm-hmm. we see that she uh, is the one who's singing and then chanting right. and under her song these you know we'll get all that good stuff coming up. Uh, and that she she made these things that the text says, but mm-hmm. Nienna's involvement we I don't think we can really downplay that. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll see later at a, at a very important stage her crying again in the same location, and those tears having another effect. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think that we this is why so many times for for first time readers this is why you have to read it more than once because a lot of times you'll read through something. And you'll say, oh, so later when this happens, ah, I get it now. So just be patient. Uh, but for everybody else, you know what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. 
we have to, one of the things that comes to my mind is why is Nienna crying right now? Is mm. she, is she mourning the loss of the lamps or is she perhaps having a sense of, of foreknowledge here? Is she mourning I, for what yeah. she knows is going to happen? I, I think, don't know. I don't know. I, I think it could be a bit of both. I think, uh, so. I think the, so. Or she could just be on another crying jag. I mean, really, this is Nina. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Oh, man. We're, we're, we're going to get the mail tonight. now. We're going to get the yeah. mail now. Um, I, let's, no, I, why don't we, I, I think it's a little bit of both. And yeah, I do too. once we see what's actually going to come of this song, yes. let's go back to that because I okay. think we'll, I think we'll have a, a really good insight. Right. Um, well, then I, will, then I will let you go with no further commercial interruptions. All right. <laughs> so I'm moving on to this, the, the next paragraph here. And as they watched upon the mound, there came forth two slender shoots and silence was over all the world in that hour, nor was there any other sound save the chanting of Yavanna. Under her song, the saplings grew and became fair and tall and came to flower. And thus there awoke in the world the two trees of Valinor. Of all things which Yavanna made, they have most renown, and about their fate all the tales of the elder days are woven. Hmm. The one had leaves of dark green that beneath were as shining silver, and from each of his countless flowers a dew of silver light was ever falling, and the earth beneath was dappled with the shadows of his fluttering leaves. The other bore leaves of a young green like the new-opened beech. Their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground. And from the blossom of that tree there came forth warmth and a great light. Telperion, the one was called in Valinor, and Silpion, and Ninquilote, and many other names. But Laurelin the other was, and Malinalda, and Kulurian, and many names and song beside. Hmm. I'll stop there again. Uh, wow. I'm but, just jealous that you get to read all those names. Those are beautiful <laughs> names, aren't they? They really are. It's some of the most, yeah. Some of That those is a beautiful passage. Incredible prose in the book right here in this it passage. It really is. Yeah. It's, uh, and, it's and certainly it's not an understatement when it says, and about their fate, all the tales of the elder days are woven. No, no, not at all. That they is are not an understatement. Really, they are really, I'm going to just go out and say they're, they're the most important thing mm-hmm. about the Silmarillion. Yes, they are. And uh, somebody may challenge me on that someday, but um, well, I think this is, this is the start of I think of the, the Silmarils are more important, but we'll get but, to that. Well, we'll we? get to that. Yeah. Uh, they are not only one of the most important creations of the entire legendarium, but so beautiful. I think some of the most beautiful visual art that I've seen from artists yeah. having to do with Tolkien's world has to do with recreating the trees. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and if, you know, if, if anybody's, you know, reading this for the first time and, you know, trying to understand exactly what's going on, these are trees that shine with their own light. Yeah. One with a silver light, Telperion shines with silver light and Laurelin shines with golden light. And, and, and even gives off warmth. And even give off, gives off warmth, which is uh, incredible. Yeah. And, and they drip this glowing radiant dew um and uh oh, it's yeah, we'll just get, it's, and we'll get to what happens with that dew even in a little bit yes yeah. absolutely and it's just amazing it's it's a it's a beautiful image um, it really is 
So I'll move on now, and uh, I promise I'm going to keep this next reading about the trees brief. Um, <laughs> and then I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, about Nienna and what we think this yes. means. Yeah. So, so the next paragraph begins with, In seven hours the glory of each tree waxed to full and waned again to naught, and each awoke once more to life an hour before the other ceased to shine. Thus in Valinor twice every day there came a gentle hour of softer light when both trees were faint and their gold and silver beams were mingled. Telperion was the elder of the trees and came first to full stature and to bloom, and that first hour in which he shone, a white glimmer of a silver dawn. The Valar reckoned not into the tale of hours, but named it the opening hour and counted from it the ages of their reign in Valinor. Uh, I, I would love to go on and read the entire paragraph. Of course you <laughs> would. <laughs> I think we do need to get to the last sentence of that paragraph that says, Thus began the days of the bliss of Valinor, and thus oh, yes. began also the count of the time. The count of time. Yes. Now so, time moves. Now time moves. So Is defined, yeah. Right. Absolutely. They, they, they actually have something to count from. So if we remember that the lamps had been unchanging, it was, it was actually described as an unchanging day. Mm -hmm. Like we said, sort of noontime across all of Arda. The trees actually wax and wane. Yeah. Telperion waxes first, reaches its brightest point, and then starts to wane. And then an hour before it goes out completely, Lowerlin wakes up. And so yeah. it's, there's that one hour of the mingling lights where both of them are probably very dim. Well, but yeah, they're, they're at their, their dimmest. Is, right. But the, their light is mingling. And uh, that is actually, we'll see, that's actually a very sacred time for the mm -hmm. Valar. Uh, and it's just so very beautiful. But so what do we take from all this? The waxing and the waning to me is a symbol that, you know, as we've said, this is the count of time. This world is no longer perfect. It waxes no. and wanes. It's going to have cycles now. Uh, okay. There is still great beauty in it. And certainly, you know, the, the a number of paragraphs we get describing the trees versus the number of paragraphs we get on the lamps <laughs> shows just how point. much beauty there is yeah. in these trees. And I think... Yeah, I think for, the lamps were very functional. The lamps did their job, right. but the trees right, have a right. beauty right. that is exactly. is far beyond. Well, and, and a lot of that beauty may have to do with their accessibility. I mean, the the lamps were at the top of these pillars that were sure, yeah, fifty thousand feet high, yeah, or or more. You know, they might have been a hundred thousand feet atmospheric. Mm -hmm. uh, the trees are right there, there, yeah, just outside well, the western gate of Valmar. And they're accessible and, to our minds too. I mean, yeah. as, well, as yeah, we can uh, relate to the finite of creatures the of as finite creatures of Earth, as as men, as mortals yeah. ourselves. We we can relate to this this concept of trees that that yeah. wax and wane. It's a little hard to conceive of a tree that can pour forth warmth and that is golden true. <laughs> dew that can be collected in vats. But it's that is true. It is at least within our 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 mind's ability to some extent. Whereas trying yeah. to picture a lamp that gives light to the entire Earth being on a pillar. That's, that's right. a little harder to imagine. Right. Um, I, absolutely. But yeah. And, but, and I, but I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say just in terms of the beauty of the trees versus sort of the, just kind of the, the functionality of the yeah. lamps. I yeah. think that we see here that, you know, the, the trees are more interesting and alive mm -hmm. and, and beautiful. And so. Well, and they are alive. They're, no, they're organic they are, things. Absolutely. The, the, absolutely, light, yeah. the lamps were not. And right. they were on pillars of stone. True. Uh, whereas true. these are living, living things. Yeah, I almost said living, breathing things. That would be a stretch. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, living organic material uh, that had a light of its own, 
you know, yeah. Varda had put the light in the lamps. Um, this, the Telperion and, and, and Laurelin have their own light. Uh, mm, so it's a different that's a good thing. point. That's a yeah. very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think, I see, I think what we're seeing here is, uh, Melkor's mischief has wrought something beautiful and mm. has indirectly, of course, but, well, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's always indirectly, it, but it's uh, yeah. yet another example of what we, of one of those it, things we'll th we'll see all the time. Right. Yeah. Shall yeah, prove, but, but mine instrument. Exactly. It's yes. That has, his mischief has been turned on its ear and some, yeah. you know, the Valar have created something incredible out of it. Yeah. However, um, <laughs> all is still not perfect because now no. the Valar are beginning to count time. You know, mm. uh, thus began the days of the bliss of Valinor, and thus began also the count of time. So these are blissful days, but they are days. They're finite days. They are yeah. finite days. Yeah. And if we're counting days. We're counting to something, aren't we? We're counting to something. And uh, our days are numbered. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good point. Um it's it's just a, a subtle reminder subtle, of yes. the mortality of Arda and a reminder of the, the, the Valar's failure to create something perfect and, and unending mm. and and um you know and and creating something that's finite but still beautiful. Absolutely. Um, so there's there's a there's I guess what I'm saying is there's beauty there, but there's also foreboding. And I bit. think that goes back to, to what you were saying about Nienna. Yeah. I, there is every reason to think that she has at least some knowledge because again, we got to, we got to think back to the music, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, that's, that's where you're Okay. How much, how much of the music creates a sense of omniscience in the big picture items uh, for the Valar? I don't know. You know, that's yeah, a, that's a know. question that's really hard to, to put your arms around, but does Nina have some sort of, foreknowledge of what's going to happen to the trees and, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore her tears are, are partly as a result of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to touch on a couple of things. Uh, first I just wanted to, to talk about real briefly was uh, a, a section of that passage that you actually skipped. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't know you did. Um, it was <laughs> a description of what happens with the light. This light is is almost a tangible liquid thing. It's mm -hmm. it, it, as opposed to what we imagine light to be now, or what we see light as now. The light that was spilled from the trees endured mm -hmm. long ere it was taken up into the airs or sank down into the earth. And the dews of Telperion, and the rain that fell from Laurelin, Varda hoarded in great vats like shining lakes mm -hmm. that were all to all the land of the Valar as wells of water and of light. So you could store it up they've got their flashlights now they've got their well flash lakes <laughs> lan lan flash lakes they're it's huge huge lan liquid lanterns a beautiful image it is it is a stunning image but and that was more of just a hey let's just remember that because it's pretty cool but I, yeah. I had a quick question for you because i can't really make anything out of it um on its own but i wanted to see if you had any insight into the idea of uh, telperion being a he and Lauralin being a she do you notice that, right? I mean, the the Telperion, you know, were were, were described. Yeah, yeah he's I described as that. having each of his countless flowers, the um, uh, his fluttering leaves. Um, whereas with Laurelin, we get, uh, you know, that it's clearly a she. Flowers swung upon her branches. So, is mm -hmm. there is there anything there, or am I just maybe reading too much into that? You know, I think, um, I think that is a concept that is 
we're definitely going to see that play out a little bit more later on. Well, yeah, in chapter 11. I think so. I think is that the, the one? Yeah. Of the, of the sun um, and moon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that probably goes back to, I don't know, I, I always hate to, to speculate on Tolkien sources because that's, that's looking at the bones. Um, True. I know that um, the, the idea of, uh, you know, the, the sun being female in, well, the, the sun being female and the moon being male is in Norse mythology. Okay. That it's makes, actually, that makes it's, sense. It's, it's a little different from like like Greek or Greek or Roman mythology, you know, um, where it's it's kind of it's the other way around actually. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's kind of where maybe that's where this comes from um, because you know Laurelin being sort of golden and warm and Telperion being kind of silver. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. Uh, I don't know if there's any deeper meaning there though. Okay, fair enough. Oh, and I just wanted to say earlier I had talked about somebody um, talking about putting the words into the vernacular. I, I wanted to give a shout out to Joan Freeman. That's who it was that had, That's who had it was. commented. Thank you, Joan. I couldn't remember who it was, but she, <laughs> <laughs> she was, I think a little concerned that I put uh, Melian's words into vernacular. So, <laughs> right. Right. Oh boy. But really? unfortunately that's not going to stop. No, <laughs> just tell you that we're, right. We're having too much fun with it. <laughs> oh I, man. I do have, uh, there's one thing about the trees that I want to read into a little bit here. And this sure, is just sure. pure speculation on my part. Um, but I do see uh, the trees as symbolic of the two children of Iluvatar. Oh, interesting. Um, interesting. We are go- we're going to see, as this plays out, that elves are frequently associated with Telperion. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, seedlings of Telperion, you know, little little mini silver trees or white trees that are going to be important to, um, to elves primarily. Um, and I think we'll have some very good reasons to associate men with the golden tree, Laurelin. Um, and those of you who have read ahead, you know, probably remember sort of the point at which men come into the story and, and how mm-hmm. it might relate to this concept. Um, I don't want to go too far down that road, but I, I do think it's, no. it's very, uh, I see it, just the two trees is very suggestive of that. Again, remember that that Telperion actually arose, uh, awoke first. Yeah, and um, and we've got this idea of the, the fading of Telperion and the the, the waxing of Laurelin, um, which to me is sort of if you if you see them as representative of elves and men, um, hmm. it's sort of. I don't think that's about, as big a stretch as you think. I, in fact, I, I'm glancing right now at. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, no, I mean, oh, it, I think, it might not be. I, I, yeah. I think of the the sort of the dynamic in Lord of the Rings yeah, where yeah. by the Third Age, you know, elves are really – They're fading. They, they're, they are they're really waning. fading. They're almost done and men are just sort of, of rising. And, and even certainly in the films, probably in the book, maybe a little bit less overtly, you know, you hear this concept of True. elves saying things like our time is ending and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, – I do think that there's something there. And again, it's the idea of this, the mingling of the lights of the trees being sort of such a sacred time for the Valar. Um, that reminds me of the harmony between elves yeah. and men and, of course, yeah. hobbits and dwarves and so forth. That, yeah, it, but mostly elves and men. Victory. Certainly the, right. that first victory against Sauron uh, right. at the end of the Second Age. You right. know, I, I am going to jump ahead a little bit. I, I think, I mean, I hate doing spoilers, but I, I think uh, this, we're just going to have to bite the bullet on this one because. What you just said really makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. In chapter 12, there's a list of names that the elves give to men. Uh, and, and in that list are a lot of things that are really not very nice. They call them the sickly and the usurpers and the inscrutable, the heavy-handed, the night-fearers, the children of the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's one of those things that's yeah. kind of – one of these things is not like the others. I mean, that sounds almost like a compliment, whereas the others are all yeah. kind of, you know, really insults in some way. Yeah. And – 
it, and it has to do with when they when they came about. So that right. part is the spoiler, and I'll try to avoid going any further to that. But that certainly plays into this concept of the elves being, you know, kind of thematically tied to Telperion, mm-hmm. and uh, and men being thematically tied to to Laurelin. That's an interesting insight. I like. Yeah, that. I I had a, a lot of fun one. with it. I mean, you know, it's one of those that I, I you know I don't know what. I don't know what greater understanding we're going to get out of it, but it's a no, we may not. it's a neat attention to detail that yeah. um, that that we see. There's know. a lot of that, though. I mean, let's mm-hmm. be honest. There's yeah. a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about. There's a lot of stuff that we already have talked about that doesn't really add to you know what we what we take away from the text uh, from it, but that just kind of puts it in a different light and and yeah. is just an interesting thing to know and store in the back of your head. Um, yeah, I mean that certainly isn't going to change how I read of the sun and moon or how I read no. of the coming of men. Uh, it's just going to remind me and go, Oh yeah. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. I can see that a little parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. Oh my. Well, okay. I think, that's, well, I think that's all I've got on the trees. And well, I, yeah, I was, I, I said, it. Oh my, because I was looking at our time. Um, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to just kind of read a little bit of this next stuff, but um, sure. with all apologies to Allison and those who have been waiting for this uh, discussion of the elves and men, I think we're going to have to do, a special, 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 special episode, 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 episode <laughs> on the difference between elves and men and immortality and mortality. The good news is that'll give us a chance to get deeper into it because if we try yeah. to tackle it now, we'd have to try to shove 40 gonna, minutes of, yeah. of metaphysics into 10 minutes. Of, <laughs> we won't do of, it justice. And there's no, too many sources won't. to pull from. Yeah, There really are. Cause there's a, there's a number of letters that I want to reference. There are some things uh, out of Morgoth ring, which is in the, the history of middle earth that I think will shed some light onto this. But for now, I'll just read a little bit of, of what we get here. First, let's understand uh, that these, that, that elves and men are children of Iluvatar in the same way or in a similar way as the Valar and Maiar. Uh, these are not, the, the Valar are not superior to elves and men in, in that sense. Uh, they are in, in terms of their power, like we've talked about, but mm-hmm. let's read that. The, um, for elves and men are the children of Iluvatar, and since they understood not fully that theme by which the children entered into the music, none of the Ainur dared to add anything to their fashion. For which reason the Valar are to these kindreds rather their elders and their chieftains than their masters. We then get a little foreboding here with, If ever in their dealings with elves and men the Ainur have endeavored to force them when they would not be guided, seldom has this turned to good, howsoever good the intent. Cue the, you know, kind of music here coming <laughs> up. music. Um, and we get the, the hint that whereas to many gave strange gifts. So let's get into that specifically mm-hmm. as a teaser for our special episode. Uh, it is said that after the departure of the Valar, there was silence. And for an age, Iluvatar sat alone in thought. Then he spoke and said, Behold, I love the earth, which shall be a mansion for the Quendi and the Atani. But the Quendi shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures. I don't know if it's already been mentioned, but just so you're aware, listeners, Quendi are the elves, Atani are the men. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Quendi's what, firstborn and Atani is followers, I think is the... Uh, Quendi, the, I believe, is actually the speakers, the speaking the, people. the ones who speak. That's mm-hmm. correct. I, I think Atani, Atani, Atani must be followers. I think it is. Uh, but the Quendi shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures, and they shall have and shall conceive and bring forth more beauty than all my children, and they shall have the greater bliss in this world. But to the Atani I will give a new gift. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men 
should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. <laughs> and of their operation, everything should be in form and deed completed and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. Now, what I see there, oh, it could be days <laughs> so, of conversation. So much. So much fun. Um, when we talk about this in our special episode, we'll be focusing primarily on life, death, mortality, immortality, the nature of the gift, that kind of thing. And a little less on, on this idea of uh, the virtue to shape their life beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. That idea of fate and free will is something I've been working on for a while. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about that a lot more when we get to the chapter on Tour and Turambar. So I will leave yes. that discussion for a later time. But I wanted to touch on one more thing because it even brings up another, it, it comes back to one of our recurring themes, doesn't it? Iluvatar knew that men, being set amid the turmoils of the powers of the world, would stray often and would not use their gifts in harmony. And he said, These two in their time shall find that all that they do redounds at the end only to the glory of my work. That's just another way of saying spibimi. S-B-B-I. Shall prove but mine instrument. Yep. yep. Um, love that. Just absolutely love yeah. that. So, you know, we could go more. Uh, I, I, I want to touch on one last thing as the, as the teaser. That of old the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join in the second music of the Ainur. Whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end. Mm. So there is a purpose for men after the end of Arda, we don't know what happens to the elves. So we're going to spend a lot more time on that. Yeah. And what's fascinating about that, that big question is remember that the Silmarillion is a story of elves told from the elves point of view. Mm -hmm. They don't even know what happens to them. They don't know. And I I think we'll get into that when we look at some of the kind of more metaphysical um, Texts that Tolkien has written on the subject, yeah. but well, like they said, don't we'll even bring know in those gonna... extra. We'll bring in some yeah. of those extra things, like we talked yeah. about the Morgoth ring. You'll bring in some of the uh, uh, that conversation between um, oh, who were those two again that you were just reading? Fin, about? Uh, Finrod and Andreth. Yes, of course. So another I, ha- another hat tip uh, to Joan for uh, for uh, oh, strong yeah. recommendations That's, on that one. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, so yeah, so we will touch on that, and and I apologize that we have to wrap it up, but really, I'm looking at the time and thinking. We need to call this one. So I think uh, we do. Before we do, Alan, I just want to correct one thing that I said. Uh, Atani, I just looked it up, actually means second born, not second followers. Born. Okay. There's another name for men, which is Hildor, which means That's followers. That's the followers. Yeah. Yep. The afterborn, the second born. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that correction. Uh, it's it's uh, What's that TV show on ESPN where they've got the, the guy at the end that does the corrections? Pardon the interruption. They have a, a, mm. a, a at the a, after the last commercial break, somebody, their little assistant comes in and says, okay, you made this mistake and this mistake. Man, <laughs> I don't think I want somebody to do that, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> well, if we can catch it before one of our listeners does, then, then oh, we will. Oh, that's a plus, but, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but uh, certainly uh, – to our listeners, uh, stay vigilant and please oh yeah, keep, please do keep, by all means. Yeah, I mean, we are we are not. I'd like to say we're not Tolkien experts. I guess it depends on what you mean by expert. Are we, you know, doctorate level, masters level expert? No, no. we are not. Are no. we? I don't know. Fairly knowledgeable fans. I think we'd fall into that category. Yeah, I think. I think so, so. You know, feel free to correct us. Uh, thank you for those of you who already have. Feel free to, to to fix anything, especially you know pronunciations, word definitions, things like that. 
Uh, speculations, not so much. We're all speculating. Mm-hmm. We're just going to have different speculations. That's fine. Okay, so we will touch more on that later. We're going to talk at much greater length. I think we can probably get 45 minutes out of it, maybe even more. So we'll get a special episode going for you uh, on this issue of life, death, mortality, immortality. Uh, but for now, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode of The Prancing Pony. Um, as always, we thank you very much for joining us. Be sure to come back next time. Uh, I'm not sure which episode's going to get done first, uh, but we're going to get to one of my favorite stories in Chapter 2 of Ale and Yavana. That's going to be a great one. Oh, well, you know, we like those sub-creative acts, so that's... <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, just a reminder, if you need those cheap paperbacks, use the links on our library page. Yeah, we do get a tiny bit from Amazon when you buy. It helps us cover our hosting costs, so we thank you for your, your purchases. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to submit reviews, especially on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And please take a moment to follow us on Facebook, The Prancing Pony Podcast, so you can get current updates, listen to previous episodes, and if you really want to, talk directly to Alan and me. <laughs> We're also on Twitter, at Prancing Pony Pod. Definitely. And thanks to those who have uh, posted reviews on iTunes, by the way. One last thing, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or architectural tips for cities built on lakes near dragon infested mountains. Wow. To, <laughs> that was a mouthful. That's huh? a good one. To the prance. Well, you know, wood, <laughs> wood might not be your best bet um, to the prancing pony podcast at gmail.com. That's the prancing pony podcast at gmail.com. And we'll try to get to them into, I don't know, one of our next several episodes. And upcoming episodes. <laughs> As usual, an hour and a half or so is still far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners. But until next time, Farewell, friends.